and welcome back to That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II, accompanied by my quarantine co-host, Emily. And today we are continuing our mini-series on New Age Nazis. Oh yeah. Um, so last night we were watching, uh, the kid's named Andrew, but we were watching this uh, YouTube series called All Gas, No Breaks, where this dude, he's like, he's got to be in his early 20s, maybe mid-20s. Yeah, he's not in his 30s, I'll tell you that. Yeah, he still looks like a baby, but he's tall and he goes around in a... <laughs> Cheap suit, oversized cheap suit, and he wears the same one and everything. Same shirt, tie, suit, all of it. Um, but he goes around to different conventions and stuff and just interviews people. And he's really good. He's got a great talent for interviewing people because he just stays quiet and lets people talk. Well, I think listening is a huge part of it. The interviewing process. Absolutely. And a lot of interviewers, especially like late night talk show hosts, don't know how to shut the fuck up, you know? Well, I think when you get those sort of big personality types, it tends to, they got a big ego. So right. they'd rather it's, hear themselves It's talk. ego against ego. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Andrew knows how to get his ego out of the way and just listen and let people talk. And there were two particular ones. Well, there was a few that we saw. He he went to a Proud Boys rally. Oh, yeah. Went to a Proud Boys rally. He went to a Flat Earth convention. Yeah. And he also went to a New Age convention. Yeah. Where <laughs> he ran into a, a young couple... Uh, in their 20s, who were QAnon people. Um, And there was also this old man who was looking for his Republican queen. He's like 80 years old. Yeah, he was a little too old to be that desperate. Yeah, and he built a website for people to email him to see if... They could be his Republican queen. It was a goddess. Oh, goddess. Republican goddess. That's it. And uh, he had yet to find one. A lot of trolls trolling him, which <laughs> I think is great. Um, but let's see what else. He uh, Andrew also went to a biker rally. Yeah, he went to the Sturgis rally. In South uh, Dakota? Sturgis? Is yeah. that where it was? I think it is. It's uh, one of the Dakotas. And... There was something that all of these different, well, the people that went to these rallies and conventions and things, there was something a lot of these people had in common. A few things. Can can you recall anything that a lot of these people had in common? There were a lot of Trump supporters. I saw that. A lot of Trump supporters. What else? A lot of very interesting beliefs. Beliefs as in... Kind of like worldviews, almost like theories. Yes. Almost like possibly conspiracy theories. A lot of conspiracy theories. Especially the QAnon couple. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to take a moment. And, I mean, this is the only podcast, period. But there are a couple other shows. I mean, I wouldn't consider them podcasts. I'd consider them like, you know, like 
uh, overweight five-year-old belly flopping at the pool. Um, but, you know, they exist and they're pretty good. Um, I might go so far uh, if I were to completely debase myself as to say I fucking love these. Um, some might call them podcasts, but this is the only podcast. Um, if you're looking for more information about like the weird conspiracy theories that these people have, listen to these shows. QAnon Anonymous is one. There's True Anon, T-R-U-E-A-N-O-N, True Anon. Um, and then there's a bunch of others, but those two specifically get into a lot of, um, conspiracy theory stuff that a lot of people believe. And a, a lot of the details, um, uh, let me pause real quick. The New Age Convention, not everyone there was like QAnon people. I mean, it was mostly just hippies, but there were a few people who were into the QAnon thing. And part of the QAnon thing is that, for one, it is uniquely dangerous. It's real. There are a number, like at least half a dozen, over half a dozen for sure people um, running for office, running for state seats right now who are very open QAnon supporters. I don't think I'd ever heard of it until last year. What'd you hear? It was, don't you remember, like, driving around and we'd see the signs spray-painted, like, QAnon? Yes. Q, yeah. Q says this, and I was like, what is this? It is, um, so you've got your average, like, run-of-the-mill conspiracy theories all the time, right? You know, we didn't land on the moon, uh, the JFK assassination. Martin Luther King. MLK. All, I mean, all this stuff, like, your average conspiracy theories, but... The thing about QAnon is, well, it's a big fucking topic. And I, if you want to learn more, I really recommend that show QAnon Anonymous. Um, because they're entirely devoted to QAnon. So they've, they go into a lot more depth. But I can just tell you right now, as a general overview, and as a person who's learning more and more and more about uh, the subject we're covering on this show, which I'm, you know, tongue-in-cheek entitling New Age Nazism or New Age Nazis, um, a lot. Actually, like, the actual details of the theories that QAnon is peddling, and QAnon is a collective of supporters, um, the theories these people are spouting are, at their core, purely anti-Semitic. And they are yep. verbatim, verbatim, the exact same conspiracy theories that the people who eventually formed the Nazi party peddled and believed verbatim. Even the people, like, there were several people that that Kid Andrew on that uh, all, all Gas No Breaks interviewed who straight up said, oh no, it's the uh, global Zionists. Now, I'm not going to say it's all Jews, but... I call them, I'd like to call them the Zionists, and it is the exact same rhetoric of the Volkish movement that we covered in the last episode, in part one of New Age Nazis. The Volkish movement, um, one of the many conspiracy theories they peddled was basically that there are um, a secret cabal of elite Jewish globalist 
um, I, you know, whatever, whatever, <laughs> globalists who are running everything from the shadows, a la Illuminati, um, and they have this vast conspiracy to take over the world and create a one-world government. This is the same shit you hear Alex Jones and and the ilk spewing. This is the same shit that poor, you know, poor people who are predominantly white, poor people who a lot are Trump supporters. These are people who literally believe that Trump is an outsider who's penetrated the elite system to fight uh, the global pedophiles who are, and I'm, I'm not making this shit up. This is stuff that people, I wish you were. a lot of people actually believe. People that might be your fucking neighbor. People that you might work with. People that you might be sitting with oh, this coming look Thanksgiving. Look on your Facebook. You'll see plenty of it these days. People who think Trump is, you know, stopping this secret cabal of pedophiles who run a, a secret child sex trafficking ring to harvest the children's adrenochrome, to eat their adrenochrome. And the whole adrenochrome thing comes back, like I first heard that in um, when I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was something that a bunch of waspy people, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, it was a rumor that floated around that hippies were killing people, were murdering people, and harvesting their adrenochrome, which is their adrenaline gr gland. And adrenochrome is just like highly concentrated adrenaline that seeps out in like nano doses. When you have a rush of adrenaline, you're just getting an extremely small dose of adrenochrome in your blood, and that ups your adrenaline. So it, the idea is like these people are eating people's adrenaline glands and just sucking the adrenochrome out of the glands um, to become like superhuman and to extend their lives to become invincible and to like channel fucking like the fifth dimension. People think Donald Trump is in there fighting this. Now, I don't doubt that there actually is a child sex trafficking ring, but I don't think it's a bunch of just like the liberal coastal elite Jewish cabal. Oh, definitely not. I think that there was there de it was definitely Epstein. It was definitely something with Epstein, and it definitely was not limited to just the false dichotomy of Republicans and Democrats. They're the same thing. They're the same. Same fucking thing. Well, anyway, this is. Uh, I'm nowhere near the end, or have a, that in no way gives a fully comprehensive view of what these conspiracy theories are that are alive, that people running for office, people who have won elections already this year believe in. These are people entering the fucking government. And it is very fucking dangerous. Because this exact thing has happened before. And it is what we will be covering on the show today, and I will start to get into it in this episode. Now, um, there's a lot. I did. The last episode felt like a bit of a mess, so I 
even in the notes themselves, I made sure to like, you know, indent and I, I made very organized notes. Um, present me puts college me, even grad school me to great shame. <laughs> the amount of research and the quality of research and note taking I've done for this episode is far superior than anything I did. Um, but I mean, I, that's, that's not to belittle the work I put in in fucking grad school. That shit was hard. That's when I started getting gray hairs. But anyway, I uh, did a lot of research. We got a lot of ground to cover today. And I'm going to do my best to limit it to an hour. We've already probably like, what? 20 minutes. Almost. 13 minutes yeah. in right now. Um, so the more I research this subject, the more... I start seeing how analogous it is to current events. Oh, yeah. And the more I uncover about shit in the past and how it is like directly reflects, um, if not current events, current uh, beliefs and rhetoric today. Um, so it's difficult to not dive into every uh, diverging avenue that I run into. But today I want to talk about starting with Heinrich Himmler, because he was the second-hand man, the second in power in the Nazi party, and he was really, really into the occult uh, and other uh, conspiracy theories. And so was Hitler, but he is going to get his own episode. We haven't even met Hitler yet. Um, so today we're going to start with Heinrich Himmler, and we're going to start also, uh, we're not going to complete the study of Himmler today, but we are going to what I really want the core of this episode to be about is how desperate times, desperate conditions can lead desperate people to make dangerous choices. It, I'm not saying it always does. I'm saying it can lead to that. Yeah. has often in the past. So let me take a drink of water before we dive in here. Mm. Okay. Note one. Who the fuck was Heinrich Himmler? This is from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum website. Quote, Heinrich Himmler was a Reichsführer or Reichsführer, that is a Reich leader, of the dreaded SS of the Nazi party from 1929 until 1945. Himmler presided over a vast ideological and bureaucratic empire that defined him for many, both inside and outside the Third Reich, as uh, excuse me, as the second most powerful man after Adolf Hitler in Germany during World War II. Given overall responsibility for the security of the Nazi Empire, Hitler was the key and senior Nazi official responsible for conceiving and overseeing implementation of the, quote, final solution that is the plan to murder all of the Jews of Europe, end quote. And all of the Jews everywhere. Yeah. And not just them. I guarantee it. Now, what was not covered in that quote, um, 
but it's something that we are going to be covering today because it's what our topic is about, is Himmler's lifelong interest in occultism, specifically Germanic neo-pagan and Volkish beliefs, which promote the racial pol- well, promoted the racial policy of Nazi Germany and incorporated esoteric symbolism and rituals into the SS. Speaking of esoteric symbolism in the SS, what's esoteric about the letters themselves, SS? When I was doing research, I found that the S is a sig rune. The S is one of the runes that that guy Guido von Liest, who we covered in the last episode, part one. Yep. Guido von Liest um, conceived and, and like created his own sort of cycle of runes that he sort of like synthesized of old like tribal Germanic and Nordic runes combined with like zodiac and um, alchemical symbols and shit. And so the S itself was called Sig, S-I-G, and Sig means victory. It's the rune that symbolizes victory. Um, so, and, and then the Volkish beliefs, the German neo-pagan and Volkish beliefs, also part of the sort of topics that Guido von Liszt peddled and mm-hmm. became famous for, right? Yeah. And the Volkish beliefs are like the people. The German people. The pure German people, right? The, the original, pure, beautiful, only good one. The, the real Aryans. <laughs> not, not, not the uh, Iranian actual Aryans, not the real Aryans. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was part of like the Volkish movement, which had existed since really starting in the 1700s and it picked up in the 1800s, right? Yep. Okay. So, back to Heinrich Himmler, and just for shits and giggles, I might refer to Heinrich as Henry, because that's what it is. It's Henry, right? Heinrich Henry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so Heinrich was born on October 7th, meaning he was a Libra. Not the best of the signs, but okay. What's (laughs) What's wrong with Libras? They, they tend to be a little selfish, just like Aries. Libras are selfish. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I, I, I also researched their like uh, negative traits, and one of them was like they're very vindictive and petty. Yep. Hmm. Not all. Not all Libras. Just uh, the Himmlers. Just Himmler. Well, the Heinrich Himmlers. Yeah. Well, okay. So he was a. Uh, he was a Libra king born October 7th, 1900, to a middle-class conservative Roman Catholic family in Munich, Germany, or as they say in Germany, Munchen. I like that. Munchen. What you doing, Munchen? Where are you, Munchen? So you're Munchen and Munchen? Yeah. <laughs> his father was a high school teacher, and his mother was... Very, very devout Catholic. I didn't find anything about any jobs she has, so I assume that she was a beautiful Aryan trad wife. Although Catholic, which is kind of antithetical to like the Volkish movement thing, which was kind of 
anti-Christian, what, but what, also anti-Jewish. But what we've seen it was like has anti, been that. It was like anti-Christian, but also anti-non-Christian peoples, which is fucking weird. Well, yeah. Anyway, again, the only way to make sense of any of their fucking bullshit beliefs is to accept that it simply doesn't make sense. Yeah. Much like QAnon shit. Okay. So she was a very devout Catholic, Ma- Mama Himla. Mama Himla was a very good, devout Catholic. And much like my maternal grandmother, may she rest in peace, beautiful Irish Catholic woman from the East Coast, from Massachusetts, Connecticut area. I mean, she was uh, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit anti-Semitic. Maybe a lot anti-Semitic. <laughs> And maybe when my mom would say, well, Ma, Jesus was a Jew, she would freak out and say, no, the Jews killed Jesus. But Ma, Jesus was a Jew. No, 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 you shut up. Don't you dare say that. Jesus was, the, the Jews killed Jesus. <laughs> See, circular argument. Yeah. It's... Um, they were not. They were not Brooklyn Jews like the accent I was just doing, although that was more like Manhattan. Brooklyn's more like around kind of, you know, like, uh... I love Brooklyn. You know, maybe it's time for you to shut up. God, I would... Fuck. Goddamn. If Bernie was the one debating Trump, he would have fucking trounced the orange guy. The oh, Chino. Yeah, it would have been a good time. He would have told him, maybe it's time for you to shut up. Yeah, I wish Listen here, buddy. I mean, yeah, Biden was like, oh, just shut up, man. You're a clown. I think Bernie... Because Bernie was fucking dirt poor and he's from Brooklyn. He would have gotten fucking scrappy with that motherfucker. It, it would have been a good time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> fantasy time. Um, so, all right. Himmler's father was a high school teacher. Mom was a beautiful trad wife who was a devout Catholic. And, and Himmler also, Heinrich also had two brothers. One older named Gebhardt who's named after the father, and one younger named Ernst. So Heinrich was a middle child. What, yeah. uh, there's this thing called like middle child syndrome, right? Yeah. What, what's, what's middle child syndrome? Well, they tend to want a lot of attention. They want a lot of attention. Because they feel overlooked because the first one is like, this is our paragon. And then the, the youngest one is like, this is the one we didn't fuck up. Oh, yeah. We're both the babies in ours. You and I are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're both the babies. Babies are the best. Period. Uh, the oldest ones are the shitheads. The middle first ones. First is the worst. First is the worst. <laughs> the middle ones are fucking psychos who cause scenes because they feel overlooked. Uh, and then the babies are special because, well, they're actually special. These are not scientific facts. <laughs> they're fucking universal facts. <laughs> um, so Heinrich was the middle child. All right. So, all right. When Heinrich was three years old, so that would be 1903, his family moved to a town 40 miles north of Munich. Uh, to, the place was called Landschut. And we looked up pictures of this place. Today, it's got a population of around 73,000. And it is beautiful. I mean, 
Europe in general is very beautiful. You know, but it's, it's I mean, the Bavarian style, just German style building architecture is just fucking beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, all, yeah, all of European fucking yeah. architecture is beautiful. Um, well, anyway, they moved to this town called Landshut, or a small city called Landshut. And there, his dad, Heinrich's dad, started working as the assistant principal at the same um, grammar school that Heinrich attended. Um, well, in school, Heinrich did great in his studies. He, he was very studious. He worked hard. He got great marks. Um, but what he wasn't great at was sports. As a matter of fact, he really sucked at sports. He was uh, a weakling, you know. Uh, if this were a meme, he, he's the virgin. He's the weak soy, soy boy virgin who was not good at sports. Um, and he, uh, but a part of that was because he had a lot of physical ailments. He had a lot of like stomach problems and just other general ailments. I'm sure, I'm sure like pain and fatigue. Um, he probably had like IBS and ulcers and shit. If I had to guess, I'd, I'm sure there's more research on that out there. Yeah. I'm sure that they've autopsied. Oh yeah. Well, he sucked at sports, but he, Really wanted to be good at sports. So uh, throughout his teen years, he started working out a lot. He did a lot of weightlifting, a lot of track, uh, because he wanted to make those gains, become a swole Chad. Um, and while he didn't become like Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger swole, um, he, got, he got fit as much as he can. But he still had a lot of just general illnesses that he dealt with throughout his life. Yeah. Um, and he was also kind of aspy. He, he was probably on the spectrum because a lot of students who were, or, or a lot of his old classmates who were later interviewed, when asked about Heinrich, they remarked that he, he was very studious, um, but very, very awkward in social situations. So, he wanted to be big, strong, physical guy, but just because of the genetic lottery, that wasn't really the cards he was dealt. It was tough for him. Um, and he was very smart, but uh, just not, not good with social interactions, not great with interpersonal relationships. So that's kind of his personality. Well... Starting at the age of 10, young Heinrich started keeping a diary that he kept off and on throughout his life. Uh, in it, he wrote about current events. Yes, at the age of 10, he was writing about current events. He wrote about dueling, uh, which was really popular at the time. I told you about this earlier. Uh, if you look up, like... Um, I guess like 1900s German dueling clubs, you will find in Google images, you will find some really cool fucking pictures of, of course it's black and white. Um, and of course it's uh, white young men, young German men and an Austrian as well. Um, wearing these outfits like these uh, sort of like, fencing outfits but the fencing outfits at the time 
they just looked really fucking cool. Um, it looked like kind of like uh, some almost like what would later be used as a sort of a, a prototype for like kind of a, like S&M dungeon wear, but not really like uh, leather boy gimp mask kind of stuff. It's more like like it would fit in the Nine Inch Nails closer music video. Like it was very cool looking. Um, the pictures are very fucking goth, which I love. And you'll see pictures of all these guys with like a pint in hand gathered around one dude who's got a slash somewhere on his face and is completely covered in blood, grinning like a banshee. Why? Well, because dueling was a trend around that time that young men, usually young men of means, the, the poor folk didn't really get to do this because it was generally revolved around like fraternities so they had people who had enough money to go to college. Um, they would knife fight each other and slash each other's face. So, you know, like in movies when they depict like, like, you know, Nazis who fled to Argentina, they always have like a big scar on their face. Yeah. Like, why is the bad guy always got a scar? And even if you look up pictures of... Uh, people in the upper echelons, um, uh, officers in the upper echelons of the Nazi party, you'll see a lot of them have scars on their face. Knife fights. Knife fights. Because it was the dueling thing. Because it was a way to sort of, sort of like a rite of passage into manhood and acceptance in, you know, the clique, the local boys, the cool club. Um, you know, Saturdays for the boys, whatever that shit Trump Jr. said or Eric or whatever said. I don't know. It's kind of like that vibe. Um, well, yeah, these dudes would fucking knife fight each other. And if you got a slash on your face, then you're fucking lit. You're sick lit, bro. Bet. <laughs> so 10-year-old Heinrich was writing about that because he was really into, you know, he wanted to be an alpha. He didn't want to be a virgin soy boy. He wanted to be fucking alpha. Um, and in his diary at the age of 10, he also wrote about what he described as, quote, the serious discussion of religion and sex, end quote. I can only imagine what that is. So at a young age, he had some weird fucking ideas and hangups regarding sex oh, and sure morality. Oh, I'm sure it had to do with his mom. Oh, Probably. Maybe he was abused as a child or something, maybe. Or she told him that sex is evil and, like, the only way to do it is for the man to be in power. Maybe. Uh, you know. That's something I'll research later because I know I, I did kind of skim over it last week. Yeah. Um, but that's something we'll cover more. We got to move this along. Okay, so fast forward five years. When Heinrich was 15, he started training with the Landshut Cadet Corps. And then two years later, when he was 17, Heinrich's dad reluctantly, at the behest of Heinrich, begging his dad, uh, uh, his dad reached out to some connections he had in the royal family uh, in order to get Heinrich accepted as an officer candidate. Because all things alpha and, you know, nationalist and you know, German culture. He wanted to fight. You know, he wanted to be a, you know, a Germanic tribal warrior like in the myths of old. You know, 
fighting against the Romans, fighting against the uh, the Roman Catholics coming to take and rape and ruin pure, true German culture. These are the kind of myths and stories that were popular and that he grew up reading about. And it wasn't just him. Like, that was part of the general culture for a lot of people. Not everyone, but for a lot of people. Um, Germany first. Yeah. Well, so part of that is he wanted to join the military and get some kind of glory. You know, like the old Vikings, like they were all about glory on the battlefield. Like if you die in battle, you get into Valhalla. That kind of mentality. Well, dad, he begged his dad, Heinrich did, and his dad really didn't want him to do it. His dad was like, I want you to like become an educated man. And, you know, live an educated life. Like, going and getting killed on the battlefield is not as great as you think it is. But Heinrich is, no, no, I want to go into the battlefield. I want to fight. I want to fight for our nation. I want to fight for our culture. So his dad relinquished, or whatever the word is, um, and, uh, you know, got him accepted as an officer candidate. And then Heinrich enlisted in a reserve battalion, in December of 1917, which is uh, near the end of World War One. So hold up. Okay, so at this point, Heinrich's older brother, Gebhardt, had already been off fighting in the trenches on the Western Front. Uh, his brother, Gebhardt, had already earned an Iron Cross, which was awarded for military contributions and battlefield involvement. Um, and would soon thereafter be promoted to rank of lieutenant. So the reason I bring this up is because I feel it feeds into Heinrich's middle brother syndrome, his need to stand out and his want to be part of the war and uh, his desire to be a distinguished and decorated veteran like his big brother. Yeah. But, however, while he's in this reserve corps training and stuff, in November of 1918, the fighting ended. World War I, the fighting ended, and Germany was declared the loser. Thus, Heinrich was denied his chance to become an officer or get involved in combat. And one month later, he was discharged from the military and sent back to Landshut. And there he finished high school because I, I guess he put that on hold so he could oh, go enlist in the military. Pretty weird. He, he got back into high school uh, and then graduated in July of 1919. Now, it's important to note that although Heinrich had been discharged and sent back to school, he was still dead set on joining the military and becoming an officer. However, there was a bit of a problem with that, called the Treaty of Versailles. See, it was signed just before the July that he went back. It was signed on the 28th of June, 1919. And this treaty completely dashed old Henry's hopes of joining the military. Why? 
because the terms of the treaty meant that aside from being forced to take the blame for basically all of the damages to everyone, no matter what nation, received during the war, um, Germany also had to give up a lot of its territory and um, it was forced to pay reparations to all of like the ally Entente. And that would be like, who was it? Russia, France, Britain, uh, and um, the U.S. And all, and all of their colonies. Okay. I was going to ask. I was like, did the Africans not get it? Africa, Australia. Uh, although I'm sure the African colonies sure didn't, didn't get, get much. much. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. So Germany alone was... From, uh, all blame was placed on them. Which uh, some people... That was part of an article of the treaty. And... Uh, people started calling that the war guilt article. Um, so an undue amount of blame was placed on Germany. And the reparations demanded of them were to the tune of 132 gold marks, which translated into U.S. dollars. Then, in 1919, was the equivalent of $31.4 billion. And remember... The, like the GDP of countries back then was not that big, especially yeah. for a smaller country, especially one that had just sunk a lot of money into a war and inflated to today's standards that thirty one point four billion dollars U.S. translates today to four hundred and forty two billion dollars. That is US. a lot more than I was going to guess. I was going to say 70. 442 billion. Yikes. Yeah. So, not only that, but Germany had to also, like, almost completely demilitarize. They had to reduce their vast numbers to, like, no more than 100,000 troops at all. They had to get rid of their navy. They had to get rid of everything. Completely declawed and defanged. So they could still have, basically, a symbolic military for defense, but kind of like what we did with Germany, at the end of World War, or, 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 or uh, Japan. Japan, at the end of World War II, just you have a symbolic army meant for quote unquote defense only. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happened. So that means that the German military was accepting no new wannabe warriors. So that means Heinrich's big dream of joining the military and becoming a decorated, loved warrior, that wasn't going to happen. So it's important to note that at the time of the signing or the devising of the Treaty of Versailles, there's a very famous British economist named John Maynard Keynes. Um, for those of you watching or listening, look up Keynesian economics. That is K-E-Y-E-R-K-E-Y-N-E-S is how you spell Keynes. Uh, he had a big influence on how um, our economy is built today, kind of worldwide. Although Keynes himself, if he were still alive right now, would say, this free market that you guys claim you're doing does not fucking work. Yeah. Like he was a big proponent of like regulating a free market. Which still 
inherently doesn't work. But he he meant well and, you know, whatever. Well, at the time, John Maynard Keynes remarked that the reparations demanded of Germany were far too large and far too harsh, that they were counterproductive, and he predicted that it would lead to massive hyperinflation and economic depression that would affect more than just Germany, which it did in short time. Uh, so after graduating um, with his hopes of being a war hero completely disintegrated, Heinrich became a drifter, like a cross between Mad Max, John Rambo, and Jack Kerouac. Not really. <laughs> no, he spent the summer, he graduated high school, he spent the summer working for a little bit as an apprentice on a farm, uh, and then came down with some kind of illness. Which, I mean, I don't blame him. I, I, I would have come down with a quote-unquote illness too if I had to fucking work on a farm <laughs> then I didn't, that I didn't really want to work at. Um, so in the fall, still in 1919, he began studying. He enrolled and was accepted into the Technical University of Munich where he began, began studying agriculture. It was there that he joined a German nationalist student fraternity and began to read deeply into the racist nationalist Volkish literature that was popular among the radical right of the interwar German political spectrum. Ding, ding, ding. Paging Guido von Liszt, paging Guido von Liszt, the guy we covered in the last episode, the one who went blind for a year and who saw a bunch of runes and received secret ancient Nordic and Germanic occult knowledge from the astral plane and became massively popular among his for his subsequent books about it, about uh, books about rejecting modernity and embracing his idea of pre-Christian ancient German way of life, and about how there's a secret cabal of Jewish elites who all rule the world from the shadows and are trying to create an evil one-world government. So here's the thing. Also, in the last episode, in part one of this mini-series, we covered the unification of... Germany in 1871. A big part of that Unification Act was the elimination of many regulations that discriminated against non-Christians. That includes Jews and other minority groups. So the Unification was like, yo, no more, no more racist policies. Okay, but that didn't stop people from being fucking racist. Yeah. Um, so... What did I write here? However, the elimination of those regulations didn't do a damn thing about the anti-Semitic attitude of many Germans. That is to say, anti-Semitism was still alive and thriving big time when Heinrich went to college. And Heinrich himself, by the time he got to college, he was already anti-Semitic, but not like exceptionally so. It was I just, mean, I'm sure for the time. Yeah, it was just like your average level of ignorance that was part of the culture yeah. at that time. Um, now, before we get into his university years, let's take a quick break. Oh, well, we're already at 44 minutes. Yep. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. 
And we're back. Um, so we left off and I've got a lot of notes here, so we might have to break this, what I've written so far <laughs> into two parts. So, um, the theme I, I still want to do is still like desperate people can make, uh, dangerous decisions. This thing's shining me in the eye. Um, so let's just pick up where we left off yeah. and then we might have to break this off and leave it for part three. So where we left off, um, Himmler had just entered college at the technical university, technical, technical university of Munich <clears throat> to study agriculture. So during his first year at university, Heinrich remained a devout Catholic and spent much of his leisure time with a fencing fraternity called the League of Apollo. Now, the president of this fraternity was a young Jewish man, young student. Uh, and there were other Jewish students at the school. Now, while Henry was your average ignorant anti-Semite, he wasn't like refusing to talk to these people or, you know, being mean to their face or anything. He remained polite, decent, and civil around them. But when he was alone, he would write in his diary about how he felt uneasy around his Jewish classmates, to say the least. And, uh, you know, being around this kind of diversity did not help him become more, like, open and accepting. It just kind of gradually started becoming more anti-Semitic as the year progressed. So, there's that. Now, the second year at university is when things really start to pick up. So, <clears throat> during his second year at university, Heinrich redoubled his attempts to join the military, to make a career in the military. But it's like, dude, do you not remember? The military's like, it's gone. Um, so, of course, he was not successful, because the military by this point had been all but completely dismantled. Uh, so instead, he became involved in a paramilitary group that was beginning to grow in Munich and other cities around Germany. It was at this time that he first met a man named Ernst Röhm. He was, Ernst Röhm was an early member of the Nazi party and later a co-founder, along with Heinrich, I believe, in creating the Sturmab Sturmabteilung, Sturmabteilung, the Storm Battalion, the SA, which was kind of, I guess, like a soon to become the SS or part of the SS. Um, Heinrich kind of had a big man crush on Rome, and Rome became Heinrich's sort of mentor. He took Heinrich under his wing. Um, and it was at Rome's suggestion that Heinrich joined an anti-Semitic nationalist group called, uh, which Rome himself 
founded, of course, called the Reichskriegsflagge. Can you say that word? Reichskriegsflagge. Or in English, the Imperial War Flag Society. So during this year, 1922, still his second year and final year at university, um, Henry became feverishly interested in the, quote, Jewish question, also known as the Jewish problem, which was a big discussion uh, around Germany and Austria around that time about what to do about the Jews. Should, how should we treat the Jews should we consider them equals? Should they have the same rights as us? That's the Jewish question. Um, and Henry, Heinrich, started filling his diary with increasingly more anti-Semitic remarks and also recorded discussions he had with other classmates about the Jewish question, also known as the Jewish problem. Um, and he also made lists in his diary about the kind of literature he was reading at the time. The lists were massively dominated uh, by anti-Semitic pamphlets, German mythical stories of like, you know, uh, the Volkish movement. I'm sure he's reading lots of Guido von Liszt. Um, and also lots and lots of occult literature. He was really into the occult. Okay, so there was this dude named Walter Rathnau, all right? Walter Rathnau was a German industrialist. He, owned, he was a big capitalist guy. He's a German industrialist. He was a writer, and he was also a moderate liberal politician. Um, Rathnau played a major role in organizing Germany's war economy during World War I. <clears throat> and after the war, he served as German foreign minister of the Weimar Republic. So the Weimar Republic is kind of like what became of the uh, Germany's uh, government in the interwar period. So right after the Treaty of Versailles, right after World War I, and before the takeover of the Nazi Party. And the Weimar Republic was like, I didn't do a whole lot of research on them, but it, it pops up a lot. I've learned bits here and there. Uh, a lot of it was just, I mean, the main idea was that it was like a, a representative democracy, like a democratic republic, not unlike ours. And it was largely populated with, like, moderate liberals. It's important to note, dear audience, that there is a difference between liberals and leftists. Um, I understand that in the United States, there is confusion over the idea of, you know, People think they, they label liberals as leftists. Liberals are not leftists. Do you know why? Why? Well, you tell me. No, tell me. God damn it. I was hoping you'd tell me. Um, it, it comes down to basically a critical analysis of 
power, uh, generally. So there's this word called political economy, and that is the idea that um, your uh, political system is married to your economic system. They influence each other. Um, and oftentimes it's the economic system that influences the political system yeah. more so. Um, and liberals, while it's the idea of like, you know, what I hear people say when someone says they're like um, socially progressive and fiscally conservative or as liberals like to say, fiscally pragmatic. <laughs> it's basically um, liberals have very little ideology. Um, it's a lot of just sort of token symbolic things like putting hashtag BLM and a rainbow flag after, you know, giving a huge fucking bailout to uh, corporations and holding with no strings attached, no accountability, and leaving working class people uh, in the dust. Um, liberals are not married to the idea that um, workers should have the right to organize or have power. They're capitalist. Yeah. Um, and they have, they have no, or they do not know, or they do know, and they reject the idea of a critical analysis of capitalism, such as the one that um, Marx and Engels proposed. Okay, well, largely Karl Marx, but also Engels. I don't want to leave him out. So anyway, so the Weimar Republic was kind of like our government right now in a way that there were moderate liberals um, and there were right-wingers. It was very much like our current government. And it was toothless, especially the moderate liberals who tried to maintain, uh, you know, your usual status quo um, representative democracy republic kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Weimar Republic. And um, they couldn't really do anything, partly because of the depression that was going on um, caused by the uh, I mean, there was already economic problems before World War I happened, but the Treaty of Versailles extremely exacerbated the issue, especially for Germans. And, um, yeah, there was just a lot of political unrest, and they couldn't really do anything to stop the growing right-wing uh, movement that was happening, extreme right-wing movement that was happening. And there were a few leftists, a few socialists, democratic socialists, who got into office, but um, everyone else, the right wing and the moderate liberals, uh, did everything they could to shut down the leftists, the socialists, um, because they didn't like them. Yeah. Because it, at the end of the day, threatens their pocketbooks and status. So, anyway, back to Walter Rathenau. In 1922, Rathenau initiated something called the Treaty of Apollo, which made it easier for Germany to 
make trades with Soviet Russia. Um, so like by the end of World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution had happened and Russia was a uh, Soviet collective now. It's a Soviet entity. Um, and well, they, uh, let's see, what, what, where, where was I? Uh, the Treaty of Rapallo made it easier for Germany to tr make trades, do trades with the Soviet Russia. This, in turn, allowed Russia to aid Germany, the Weimar Republic, in its secret rearmament program, which was a massive violation of the Treaty of Versailles. So, while Rathenau was happy to accept aid from the Soviets, he was, a, he was very vocal about his disdain and condemnation of the Soviets and of Marxist theory. Remember, the guy was a moderate liberal. So he was happy to get the aid, but still said, but I don't like you guys. I don't like the way you run things. I don't like your, your ideology. Because remember, this guy's an industrialist. Yeah. He's got a lot of money. And... If you're a fucking capitalist, industrialist with a big seat in government, you're definitely exploiting a lot of proletariat, a lot of workers. So, but Rath Rathenau did not like Marxism, but he still accepted money from them and other things. Um, however, since Rathenau was accepting aid from the Soviets, the right-wing extremists in Germany marked Rathenau as a revolutionary. See, but the th here's the thing. Liberals and right-wing folk both hate socialists. For your information, they have that in common. Uh, so I, I say that's something to think about. Um, yeah. Moderate liberals have more in common with right-wing extremists than they do with socialists. Because the thing is, Right-wing extremists, fascists, do not threaten uh, the capitalist system. As a matter of fact, it helps embolden the capitalist system. There's this line that's often misattributed to Lenin, um, although he did talk about it. He didn't say this line precisely, but it is that fascism is... Oh, God damn it. What was the line? It was like... Um, Fascism is like a last stand to protect capital. You know, if capitalism is really falling apart and no amount of regulations or anything will help it, then employ fascism to really wield the monopoly of violence the government holds against everybody to just, you know, re-embolden capitalism. Uh, I really butchered that line, but whatever. So... Anyway, the right-wing extremists labeled Rathenau as a revolutionary, and, and not only was Rathenau accepting aid from socialists, but he was a Jew, too, and a wealthy, successful business Jew at that. So they really didn't like him. So in June of 1922, a right-wing terrorist group called the Organization Council murdered Rathenau in Berlin. Uh, 
Some members of the public regarded Rathenau Rathenau as a democratic martyr, but when the Nazis took power, they banned all commemoration of him. Note, the rearmament, the secret rearmament that Rathenau helped initiate uh, did not end with Rathenau's assassination. Instead, it was taken over by the Nazi party. And subsequently, while the Nazis had control of that secret rearmament program, around 150 United States companies helped them in their effort. Color me unsurprised on that. Even companies like, I think it was DuPont, and I'll cover this later in other episodes about the kinds of companies, how America helped create the Nazis. Wasn't it a leave or somebody too? I I don't know, but one company was like really into eugenics. It might have been DuPont or someone. Uh, A lot of these companies were American companies were into eugenics and were massively not just sympathetic, but supportive of the Nazi movement. Okay. So after Rathenau's murder, Heinrich Himmler's political ideology and opinions veered hard and fast to the radically far right. He got involved in demonstrations against the Versailles Treaty, and understandably so, but for the wrong reasons. (laughs) I'm sure he blamed it on the Jews, and I'm sure he had some terrible ideas of how to resolve the issues that the treaty created. And also, by this time, hyperinflation, the hyperinflation and massive depression that John Maynard Keynes had predicted had come to fruition. Therefore, Heinrich's father, at that point, could no longer afford to finance all three of his sons' education. Evidently, Heinrich wanted to get a doctorate. If he couldn't join the military, he wanted to be an academic, intellectual. Okay, so... Boom. By this point, Henry's hopes for his future were now gone. He had earned his diploma in agriculture, um, but he, he, he could not become a famous warrior. He could not continue his academic studies, but he had that diploma. So figured he could try to get a good paying job because he's got a degree, right? Wrong. <laughs> There's a great fucking depression going on. And the only job he could get is a very low-level, low-wage job at a manure processing plant in the Munich suburb of Schleisheim. Is that how you say it? Schleisheim? Schleisheim. 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 Um, Yeah. He worked at a shit factory. I mean, you know, that's... He clearly had dreams of having like making a fucking name for himself right yeah he had aspirations he had and then big he aspirations. ended up dealing with shit literally. literally dealing with shit so he worked at that shit factory for one year until september of 1923 which was one month after he joined the burgeoning nazi party and then later that year November 9th of 1923, Heinrich Himmler marched with Hitler, Röhm, Hermann Göring, and other Nazi leaders in the Beer Hall push against the German government. To be 
continued. Let's see. So we're at an hour now. Um, should I get into World War One yet? Or I think now's a good time to. I think so. Let's take a break on this episode. And then in the next episode, we will continue the story. And we will get into how World War One started, how it ended, and what, how that affected the daily life of regular people, such as Heinrich Himmler. And kind of talk about how those shitty living conditions, horrible material conditions, led a lot of people to, you know, support the Nazi party. You know, it's easy now to look back at the horrors, the fucking nightmarish atrocities um, of the, the Holocaust. Yeah. And it's easy to say, how could people be okay with that? Or even though, even if they didn't know about the Holocaust, how could they be okay with any of this completely insane, dystopian fucking madness that was the Nazi era? How could they get behind that? And it's because at the time when it was growing, it seemed like something um, that could bring stability to people's lives, material stability. And then followed behind that is the idea that it could bring back people's cultural identity. They could have something that they could use as solidarity. Feels very familiar. It feels very familiar. How? I'm just thinking about how we're using these regurgitated terms of like, America first. Make America great mm-hmm. again. But who's America, right? Yeah, America's a, a giant mixed up bowl of beautiful flavors. And it is made entirely by first genocidal whites and then a bunch of immigrants. So the only real American culture is that of the Native Americans, I say. I say bring that back. I Fuck yeah, I say bring that back. East Oklahoma's got the right idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's exactly what's happening now is what happened then. And what happened then is exactly what's happening now. We have been having horrible, horrible horrible material conditions. And the thing is, the source of the problem is, well, capitalism. However, there are a lot of moderate liberals. Um, There are, or or just like flat, solid liberals and a lot of right wings on the whole spectrum from fascist leaning to fully fascist right wingers. And I would even go so far as to say, like, centrist liberals are fascist-leaning because they may not out-and-out be, like, doing Sikh Heil, you know, but... In public. In public. (laughs) But I think they are unaware. They do not understand um, how their ideology affects everything else in the short term and in the long term how 
the reason we keep having economic collapses year after year after year, like clockwork. Every seven years or so, there's another collapse. This is our, what, second or third major fucking economic collapse in our lifetime, and we're barely past 30. I don't own anything, so, you know, my economic is already shit. And the wage gap has only grown further and further and further, and it's just terrible economic conditions, and people are desperate. And there is a growing leftist movement that is Marxist, uh, people who understand Marxism, socialism, and there is a growing fascist right-wing movement. And the thing is that those who consider themselves, selves, you know, centrists who want to, you know, reach across the aisle and meet in the middle, you're reaching across the aisle to the right, and they are always year after year, month after month, pulling you further and further and further to the right. You cannot make concessions with fascists. Sure. That is exactly what happened to the Weimar Republic. The only people who held up any truly meaningful um, uh, opposition to the right-wing extremists were the socialists and anarchists. Yeah. Both of whom understood Marxist critical theory. Both of whom understood um, that there is no justice and no equality under capitalism because it is based solely off of violence and exploitation. These are the people who really want justice and equality for everybody. But even those you view as like your core status quo establishment, even if they label themselves as progressive liberals, if they are not treating the root issue of capitalism, a system that is inherently flawed, mathematically flawed, if they do not treat that, then they are only helping the right-wing people. Because the right-wingers are fine with that because right-wing, it helps them consolidate power. And we'll get into more about that when we talk about the rise of the Nazis, along with the weird fucking occult shit they infused in this. But it's happening again right now. Yeah. And everyone's punching left. You've got Nancy Pelosi on TV punching left constantly, you know, talking shit about actual progressives, actual leftists, young people. The people whole, who care. That is not that is not an opposition party. And it will and is being taken advantage of by right-wing extremists. Fascism is on the rise, paranoia is on the rise. It's been here, it's just mainstream now and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I can say as a minority in the United States right now, it's not a good time. So, well, thank you for tuning in. Uh, originally, I, I had high hopes. Much like, much like Heinrich Himmler, I had high hopes to cover a lot within an hour. But I think this is a good place to stop, don't you? For this week, yeah. For this week. And then next week, we will get into, well... 
next episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've only been putting out one every couple of weeks. I'm just, I seriously have, I've gone insane. It's complete Jack Torrance from The Shining. I've completely got uh, cabin fever. Anyway, um, we will continue the story of how desperate conditions can make desperate people, uh, can lead to desperate people, can lead to horrible choices. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, now, before you leave, um, if you have not subscribed to this show, podcast listeners, please subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, I encourage you to please uh, subscribe to my channel. Um, and if you already are, um, you know, please hit the like button and leave a comment and share the show with your friends. I would really love to be able to um, make this show my day job. Um, that way I could, frankly, it would be a lot easier for me to get a new high quality episode. Well, high quality as I can make at this time episode out to you weekly. Jesus Christ. Can you hear the downstairs neighbor hammering? That's what we have to live with. Anyway, um, yeah. If you subscribe and share the show, that would help me try to, you know, make this my day job and help educate and most importantly, entertain you. Um, another way to help is by donating via my Patreon at patreon.com slash that thing with James. Uh, that'll be in the show description, the link to that. Um, if you're in a place where it's you're, you're comfortable and feel okay with donating, I encourage you to please donate. It's a big help. And um, also, you can find me on social media. I've got great Instagram game. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J. Asher. Are there are any final things you want to say or plug before we leave? Uh, no. No? <clears throat> okay. Well, thank you all for tuning in. I love you. And um, don't accept fascism. <laughs> Good night. Night.